Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. He invested in PayPal when his roommate at Stanford co-founded it. He's been involved with Peter Thiel. He has so much uh, with respect to the tech world, and yet he just wrote a book about the American legal system and what's wrong with it. Bruce Gibney joining us here, author and venture capitalist, normally based in San Francisco, but he is currently joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. The author of a new book, The Nonsense Factory, The Making and Breaking of the American Legal. so why why did you write this book? Well, I had uh, I had been a lawyer, which was the most miserable thirteen months of my life. And uh, <laughs> boy, we've heard that before, haven't we? Yeah, and, but I got out uh, thanks to PayPal. Um, and then I became a client. And sort of one of the things I've been trained to sort of understand as a lawyer is that you know the law makes sense, and it you know it's this, all this cohesive whole and presided over by this higher authority, and you know it's this mechanical universe, God operating out of the Constitution. Everything's just going to be fine. And then as a client, I realized I couldn't get a straight answer to any question worth asking, and that drove me insane. So um, over the years, I just collected sort of stories and problems and anecdotes uh, about uh, the legal system's failings. Uh, Every time you go to a lawyer, you'll bounce around 12 different departments, you'll get a bill, and the result is always, it depends. And you're not even sure what it depends on half the time. And I found this as a client to be somewhat unsatisfying. So I wondered, why is that? And uh, I decided to write a book about uh, the legal system as a result. And I, I think that I'm in a good position to do this, having been on both sides of the legal divide, and also because I'm not uh, captive to the legal system. You know, sort of unlike professors, I don't have to defend law schools. Unlike judges, I don't have to pretend that courts always make rational decisions. Unlike congressmen, I don't have to pretend that our legislature has any idea what it's doing. Because he invested in PayPal early on, and he made a lot of really, really lucrative bets. Exactly. So (laughs) it's not just about bad billing. I mean, you argue in your book that the entire legal factory, which you call it from law schools to judges to bureaucracies to the police to maybe even the presidency is completely falling apart. So what's your basic thesis about what's going on? Sure. So law is a cooperative endeavor, just like making a car on an assembly line is a cooperative endeavor. But for that to work, uh, each part of the legal system has to understand each other. So when Congress makes a law, it has to understand the sort of industries it's attempting to regulate and how the bureaucracies will interpret those regulations or will interpret the law to make regulations. Courts have to understand how Congress works in order to interpret those laws and, uh, you know, and so on down the line, Um, you know, Law firms have to understand what their clients actually want. They don't, but... So as each part of the legal process, you know, sort of as the product moves through the assembly line, you start to see defects compounded because no one sort of takes this holistic view, right? Because law is a specialist occupation. It's like, well, I am just working on my arbitration provision in this contract. The tax provision is someone else's problem. And so all these things actually do interact. And clients, businesses know this. Lawyers don't. It's always someone else's problem. And quite literally, legally, it is someone else's problem. And that person, that other person, is the client. And that is not acceptable. 
I've got to say, uh, what you're saying definitely uh, seems true on every level. I mean, we've definitely talked to a lot of people about this. I want to shift gears a little bit because you are still an investor in uh, many of the technology companies that we hear about and talk about every day. And I'm just wondering from your perspective, what you make of this latest IPO wave and just sort of the state of the tech world right now as people talk about breaking up Facebook and breaking up some of the monopolies. Right. So uh, the predominant legal strategy when I was coming up in Silicon Valley, which was 15 years ago, i.e. forever in technology terms, was that you could ignore Washington because it was filled with dinosaurs and some mammal would come out and now compete them and they would go away. And that turns out to be wrong. The dinosaurs are actually quite powerful. They don't know what they're doing all the time, but they can <laughs> still stop Who's the mammal you. that comes out? Well, I'm not sure that we have a mammal yet. We have like a fish with legs. Um, so that's, that's sort of where we are. Uh, Technology has started to invest uh, over the past six or seven years in lobbying and trying to understand Washington and what have you. I think it is actually almost too late. The, the great difficulty is now that public sentiment has shifted, or at least political sentiment has shifted, there will be a huge push for regulation of all aspects of technology. Things that were left alone for, you know, the first 15 years of the, of the present sort of, you know, dot-com technology resurgence. And I think the regulations are going to be clunky ill-advised, and I don't think they're going to work. I think they're going to be self-defeating. And again, this all goes back to the fact that the legal system has no idea collectively what it's doing. So it's sort of, uh, you know, retail sanity, wholesale madness, as my as my old friend Peter used to say. And, and I think it's going to be a disaster for tech. And I think actually it's going to be a disaster for consumers as well. You can't just step in and say, we're going to break things up just for the sake of breaking things up. And we actually have already seen some of this because some of the rules that have been put in place in Europe have actually had the exact opposite effect where smaller tech companies don't have the capacity to comply with them. And so they actually give more market share to the big companies. That, that's exactly right, right? So again, you know, this is sort of self-defeating. It's like, well, we're going to solve this problem. And then, you know, they don't sort of fully appreciate that it might engender other problems. Um, you know, for example, the Apple case, which just came down today, although it's, you know, um, I'm sorry, on Monday, it's a, technically a tarot, narrow legal issue, right, about who has standing to sue. And by the way, this statute was passed 130 years ago. How did we not figure this out until today? <laughs> um you know, there's another case about uh, tender offers. We're just figuring out 50 years after the fact, you know, who can sue on, on that. So the legal system is not a vision of lightning action. <laughs> but, um, you know, again, with these unintended consequences, the, the Apple case, you know, one of the things that people really like about Apple is you don't have to think about anything and everything is pretty high quality within its sort of, you know, walled garden, right? And so as you sort of say, well, listen, we're going to tear down those walls, right? And uh, we're going to, you know, impose all, you know, sort of these, you know, pro-competitive things, we're going to let class action plaintiffs go wild and, you know, just let's all have at it and let's see how it works out. I don't think that's going to be great for the average Apple consumer. The average Apple consumer really just wants to click on a button and just not think about it. I mean, I'm an Apple consumer and that's what I want to do. I don't want to think about antivirus software or, you know, which app store I have to go to to download stuff and what have you. So whatever the sort of, you know, narrow anti-competitive merits are of, of the issue, whatever the narrow legal issues are, it's probably actually not going to work out that well for the average Apple consumer, because I got to tell you the truth, and it's not just because it did well off PayPal. I really don't care about the last 99 cents. <laughs> All right. Well, tell us. I'm going to give you 20 seconds for this one. What should the regulars do with tech? 20 seconds. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they should hire people who understand the industry. 
they should ask Congress for the budget to hire people who can understand the industry, and then they th- should think about things seriously before promulgating regulations. Very good. Are you volunteering yourself? I would rather die. <laughs> And that was conviction, uh, ladies and gentlemen, on the face of Bruce Gibney. Bruce Gibney, author, venture capitalist, and not a DC insider, not a regulator. He's based in San Francisco, but he joined us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. He is also the author of a new book, The Nonsense Factory, The Making and Breaking of the American Legal System. He has uh, insights from as he would say, both sides of the aisle as an attorney, relatively short one, certainly, uh, but certainly as a client. Of 13, the, 13, 13 months. months. I think 13 that was the months key. and then he was the, rescued. The, I think that was the key takeaway here, 13 months. President Trump speaks. The market responds. We are uh, getting word that President Trump, while he was departing the White House en route to Joint Base Andrews in the South Lawn of uh, in Washington, D.C., said that his relationship with China's Xi Jinping is extraordinary. He referred to the U.S.-China trade dispute as a little squabble, and he said that trade talks with China have not collapsed in response. We are looking currently at a Nasdaq that is up 1.3 percent, doubling the gains uh, in percentage terms from early today. We will bring you those comments uh, when we get them. Right now, we want to bring in our own Mike McDonough to understand what the latest is with respect to the trade negotiations between the U.S. and China. Mike McDonough, Chief Economist for Financial Products at Bloomberg LP, joining us here in our Interactive Brokers Studios. So how likely is it that President Trump simply having a more positive, constructive tone is actually going to get a fast resolution to what seems to be an escalating trade dispute. I, I given given the issues we have, I don't see how you have a fast resolution. I think uh, some of President Trump's comments may be a function of what he's seeing in the markets, right? I think that the 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 bar for as we've we've discussed this many times, right? So the bar for let's a, discuss it again. Come the, on. <laughs> the bar the bar for a trade deal is somewhat a function of how the U.S. economy is doing and how markets are doing. Uh, you know, in Q4 things looked pretty bad. Uh, you remember around Christmas time, so I think the bar had gone down. Subsequently, things picked back up a bit. Sentiments picked up a bit. Markets were doing well, so I think that bar might have gone back up a little bit more. But I think this is even deeper than that, um, right? If, if what we read is true, and there are now these structural differences, or China had promised X, Y, and Z, and they're now pulling those back, a lot of it had to do, it's, it's said, with changing laws. I don't see how we have an easy fix to this. And, you know, we're talking about what's next. There was this um, uh, image that was going around Chinese social media that said, negotiate, sure, war, we're game, Bullying? No way. So, I mean, that's the scenarios they're looking at right there. Uh, it, was, it was quite popular on WeChat. So, it, it's hard to say what direction it goes in, but I don't see how... And last time I was on, I said this again. You know, based on the volatility we're seeing now and how close everyone thought we were to a deal based on rhetoric, we need more than rhetoric, I think, for people to really feel confident we're getting somewhere. Oh, yeah? Because I'm looking at markets that are extending their gains. So, Paul, I don't yeah. know. It seems like <laughs> yeah. the market's actually the saying, rhetoric's, okay. Thanks for the rhetoric. So, Mike, what have... I mean, is this going to take President Xi and President Trump getting together in June at the G20 to hammer something out 
uh, is that the only way this thing gets done? Interestingly, it was that was it was it was when they met last year in, in Argentina where things kind of got smoothed over. When the idea markets that's when markets and investors got the idea that this was going to go away because there was threats of tariffs. They were going to go up in. Um, the start of the year, but then they decided we're going to have these talks. It's not going to happen. The talks continued. Um, 13, four, two weeks ago, we were hearing that they were, you know, the sentiment was they were nearing completion. And then all of a sudden we had that uh, Sunday tweet that indicated the exact opposite. We are looking at equity markets broadly higher. NASDAQ leading the charge up 1.4%. The S&P and Dow both up 1.2%. Uh, still with us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios is Mike McDonough, Chief Economist for Financial Products uh, with Bloomberg. And I'm trying to understand what he's saying with respect to China breaking this off. Was there some, from what you gather, I know you do speak with a lot of people, from what you gather, did China suddenly do an about face here? The sense I got is yes. Uh, uh, I mean, I, I don't I don't know anything for sure, but just the, you know, if you look at the consensus, what is read, no one's really taken the other side that they haven't. There seems to be uh, agreement that there was some things that had been agreed upon that at least from the U.S. perception had changed over the past couple months. So uh, I do think that is what caused, you know, obviously the spat. I think that going back to the bar, maybe the Chinese perceived that the bar had gone lower than it actually had, uh, and maybe they thought that meant that they could renege on some of the things that they had agreed upon. I mean, I don't know, but that certainly would justify this sort of reaction. So, Mike, what do you think China realistically wants or expects at this stage? <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's a good question. I mean, uh, I, I think they would like to get this uncertainty removed from the market. But I think the thing that they would like most that they may not be able to get is some certainty that this isn't going to come back as we get closer to the 2020 elections. You can imagine you have some enforcement mechanisms in place. They could be used as a pivot point to say, hey, you're not meeting this criteria. Or something entirely new could come up uh, and they could say, well, yeah, we had that, a deal, that deal for trade, but these tariffs are because you're doing X, which wasn't a part of that. So I think they're and I don't think they know how to mitigate it, is how do we make sure that in the lead up to this election, this doesn't come back? I think that's a big concern. So President Trump has talked a lot about his relationship with Xi Jinping, saying it's excellent. One question that has arisen over the past few weeks is how much does that matter? How much pressure is Xi Jinping under uh, internally in China to perhaps retrace some of the things he's given up uh, in his conversations with President Trump? Well, you know, I, I certainly, you know, in, in the past when there have been issues with Apple, there's been signs that maybe there's been a kind of nationalistic sort of boycott on Apple products within China. So I do think that this is going to stir some nationalism with China because back to that um, image I was talking about where we're not going to be bullied, I think that, that they, the Chinese do feel that way, right? They, they definitely want some stability. They want to maintain growth. They want to maintain good relationships with the U.S., but they want to come out looking like they're both winners. I think that there's this perception that the, U, the deal the U.S. is angling for, the U.S. comes out of this, they look like a winner, China looks like a loser. I think China wants a deal that they could both say, we've both won. Uh, and the U.S. isn't necessarily taking that and agreeing with that at, at, at the point. So it sounds like, I mean, you know, at one point we were talking about, gee, the market would be happy just with a, you know, a headline type of deal. Nothing doesn't really have to be substantive. It sounds like maybe th that is kind of back on the table because it sounds like from what you're saying, what others are saying, there really are some fundamental challenges here, some fundamental differences. 
there are fundamental and and a a good deal would benefit both countries. There's no doubt about that, right? There are some Chinese companies do have some unfair advantages versus foreign companies, especially those operating within China. Um, and you know that that is a pretty obvious place to start. So I think both sides give a little bit up. Uh, like you're not going to the trade balance with China is not going to go to neutral. It's not going to go to zero, right? So I think the U.S. needs to realize that we will certainly have a deficit with China. Um, you know, but I. Think think that, you know, if it were easier for U.S. companies to operate within China, some of that would be forgiven, I think, within the Trump administration. But I guess they're feeling they're not giving enough up right now. Mike McDonough, thanks so much uh, for joining and staying with us. Mike McDonough, Chief Economist for Financial Products for Bloomberg. Joining us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios, talking all things trade. An exercise in pain, an exercise in suffering, at least since uh, it went public. Although today its shares are actually gaining up almost 1%. Joining us here to talk about the debacle that was the Uber IPO, at least so far, is Shanali Basak, the investment banking reporter for Bloomberg. So, you know, there's a question, what happened here? Is it just terrible timing in terms of coming to market when everything was falling out of bed on trade concerns? Or was there some mispricing, miscalculation on the part of the main underwriter? So that's the big question looming on Wall Street right now. And certainly Uber and certainly Morgan Stanley, the lead underwriter, want to blame it on the market. And they all do blame it on the market. Um, but when you have investors that are more than $10 in the red right now, or you know, as some are more than 10 based on the 2016 pre-IPO valuation, they're looking around and say, why did you price this IPO so high? You knew that the trade talks were coming. You knew that there could be some market volatility. Why couldn't you do more to support the stock? So, Shanali, what we haven't seen really is the company blame their investment banker. Um, is that surprising? The reason it's not surprising is because at $45 a share in the IPO price, um, and of course, since then it's plunged, at $45 a share, they still raised billions of dollars. <laughs> By that point, they have the money, right? And so really what now is a bunch of investors that are sitting on stock that's falling. Um, Uber, of course, doesn't like their stock price, but they don't blame the bankers for a, a botched IPO by any means. Why isn't there more sort of blame about Lyft? Oh, there's a lot of blame on Lyft. Okay, there's plenty of blame on Lyft and there are plenty of lawsuits that have already occurred <laughs> and emerged for Lyft. Um, so now we're just focusing on Uber. But couldn't you say that since all of the underwriters got it so wrong, that there was just a more broad-based miscalculation on the part of the markets uh, and, and, and bankers more broadly on what ride-sharing services really are worth? I, that's a really important thing because it's not like every IPO that went out this year is doing poorly. Pinterest is doing okay, right? So it is these ride-sharing firms that are plunging and there's a that's the question. Is this these companies that's a problem? Or, you know, there's a worry about whether the IPOs are a problem at all. Well, and then and also the bankers role in it, right? I mean, how mm -hmm. much should they have known if you did have all these investors, not just the ones that they told to invest in these companies, uh, who did value these companies at, at a much higher level? Especially without a profit, right? And so the thing that's question moving forward is we've seen Morgan Stanley, uh, we reported on Friday, some of them internally called this the new FANG stock. Uh, so clearly they're still holding on to this dream of Uber becoming one day this huge 
technology company. But right now, it's hard to see that future. Shanali, do we have any uh, knowledge of to what extent or if Morgan Stanley is still in the market as the stabilizing agent trying to support this stock? Or is this stock just free trading here? So what we've reported, um, at least overnight, is that they've started to stabilize the stock a little bit. So as an underwriter, it's kind of difficult because you don't want to use that entire over allotment immediately because there's another, you know, there's 30 days in full. There's something else that could happen next week. So, you know, we don't know what to expect about where the stock goes in the short term. But the short term does um, give investors confidence to either hold on for the longer term or sell. And of course, we're seeing a lot of selling right now. So the share is down 16.4% uh, since going public. And actually, uh, on, on May 8th, the IPO is conducted after hours and then started trading uh, it on the New York Stock Exchange on May 9th. I'm just wondering what the potential liability is for Morgan Stanley at this point. Well, right now, not much, right? Well, the question is moving forward is how does this keep going. We had mentioned that this is kind of a reputational moment for Morgan Stanley. Obviously, they worked on Google and Facebook, and those were not considered great IPOs either. They actually really had a lot of trouble getting off the ground. However, um, if you held on to them for the longer term, you did really well. And now Morgan Stanley uses both of those as examples to win new IPOs. And so really, it, it depends on how Uber keeps on performing. I'll tell you, the investment bank who might be kind of grinning a little bit here is Goldman Sachs, they missed the lift. Uh, that's JP Morgan. Morgan Stanley takes the hit for Uber. Goldman Sachs is saying, hey, I didn't screw up any deal here. So have, you, have we heard any? Do you think there'll be some posturing and as they go out and pitch future deals? Absolutely. 100%. Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> However, I mean, let's not recuse them here. They were definitely on the IPO. They were the second to the lead. So yeah. it's not like they weren't involved in this um, as well. But there definitely will be posturing moving forward. I love the rhetorical question. Seriously. Will there be posturing? <laughs> There's will always be, posturing. Exactly. <laughs> will there be just something? <laughs> exactly. It's interesting. It's just it's, they're looking for any edge. But when you think about tech, you know, you think about tech IPOs, you think Morgan Stanley, they've done all these great big marquee deals. They've got the great bankers out in Silicon Valley. But, you know, I think what maybe what we're seeing here is that the markets, as Lisa suggested, maybe just having a hard time valuing these companies. You just don't have a good sense. So it's uh, it's really interesting. Uh, Shanali Basak, thanks so much for joining us. Shanali is the investment banking reporter for Bloomberg News with us here on our interactive broker studio. And I will note that Lyft is up about 5% today. So again, maybe these stocks are getting a little bit of a floor. Of we'll a, have to see. Of a lift. lift. <laughs> there we go. Well, first quarter economic growth here in the U.S. came in at 3.2%, well above consensus. To get a gauge of how the economy may play out for the remainder of the year, return to our next guest, Joel Stern. Joel's chairman and chief executive officer of Stern Value Management, joining us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Joel, thanks for joining us. First question is, 3.2%, that was much better than a lot of most economists were looking for. What did Sorry, they get wrong? I think we should say better than all economists. All economists, okay. Yes, yes. in fact... Some of them were expecting negative growth, negative growth in the first quarter. So when I heard that, I said, I want to be back on the program with you people so that we can talk about what are these people thinking when they come up with their forecasts? Well, Just because yeah. we, we, we all like to pick on economists. We, we, we get no, that. no, no. There's a, I'll, can I tell you something? <laughs> yes. The real reason why they thought the growth rate would be low or negative is because all interest rates were falling like crazy. 
that would mean that the demand is relatively weak. But I didn't fall for that. What really happened is that the consumer finally stepped up to the plate. The other parts of the economy were weak, that's true, but not the consumer. Yeah, but see, there's, there's actually a, a question, though, right now, especially with that first quarter read, about how much of the activity was brought forward, uh, how much this was in part ahead of tariffs, how much this was in, you know, in response to sort of the last gasps of what we saw from the tax cuts. I mean, there are a lot of things that people have basically said uh, that this is more idiosyncratic and isn't going to necessarily have lasting effects through the rest of the year. But you could say that all the time. What's the reason? Well, because the uncertainties that surround where we are in the world today cause different economic agents to perform differently from what they would perform if the rest of the world were doing well. Okay, so that consumers might have said, oh, I better do this before Donald Trump does something else. Okay, it's a possibility. I'm not going to say it isn't. But it is not my view of the world. All right, so what is your view of economic growth for the remainder of this year? Do we continue some of that strength we saw in the first quarter? Uh, it's not just the strength. The weak parts of the first quarter will become stronger during the rest of the year. So if the consumers don't change their behavior and they just maintain where they are, then I believe that the growth rate on average for the year as a whole will be somewhere between three and a half and three and three quarters. If that's the case, right. that may be the most disruptive scenario that we could possibly imagine. Because Why? right now, we are looking at uh, a market that is pricing in at least one rate cut through the remainder of the year. That's what they say. And and you're more abound inflation yeah. and slow growth, and people are positioned for that. It would really turn things on its head okay. if you got the right. other way around and it could really disrupt markets. I believe what really happened here was that Donald Trump's analysis of that fourth quarter increase in rates is essentially correct. We would have been around 4% for this year. But that one quarter increase, it's not that the, that small an increase makes that much of a difference. What it does do is it affects expectations going forward. What is likely to happen in the second quarter and the fourth, third quarter and so on. The markets were very concerned about that. And I believe that businessmen were very concerned about it, especially. That's why it was so weak. To what extent are you concerned about what we're dealing with over the last week or so in terms of rising trade tensions with China for your ac uh, economic outlook? Well, this is going to surprise you. I'm a Chicago boy. <laughs> I went to school at the University of Chicago, economics, yep. business school, the, the works. What do we believe out there? Is there anything sensible to our view? We think so. We think that markets at the margin are rational, that people behave in their own self-interest, but they're looking not just short-term, they're looking intermediate-term as well at the same time. And it is my view that the policies that were implemented, three things were done. There were around 1,600 onerous regulations that were put on business by the Obama administration, sufficient to get people to do business overseas instead of here. We don't have those regulations overseas, so let's do business in Singapore, or let's do business in Africa, or whatever. They said, this is not for me. Second, tax rates were way too high. If you include city and state, 38%. Overseas, 22%. So we had to get the tax rate down at least to the same level as they have overseas. 
And the third thing, we had something like $6 trillion simply frozen outside the United States. Think of the number of jobs that would create if the, if the Trump administration simply said, we'll have a minor uh, penalty, but not a huge penalty, and that money will come back. And all of these things have happened. So the economy is doing well because actually the after-tax rate of return on investment is the key driver of the U.S. economy. So we just have about a minute left. Why aren't we seeing inflation? Ah, because the Fed is not printing money. Milton Friedman was right after all. Some people say, wow, the oil price goes up. Let me tell you, if the oil price goes up, consumers have less to spend on everything else. So the prices of other things then come down to offset the oil price increase. It is my view that as long as the money supply is not excessive, we're not going to have anything to worry about on inflation. And what you should be looking at is not the 10-year note. It's the 30-year note. The 30-year note is yielding 285. That means for the next 30 years, the markets are not expecting inflation. Yeah, but they do expect, or perhaps they should be expecting a little bit more of a robust economy in the meantime, even without inflation. Why is that? Because the stock market has been so strong. It's telling us a message about the next 12 months. Joel Stern, thank you so much for being here as always. Joel Stern, Chairman and CEO of Stern Value Management, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.